0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, Today we um, hit... I always seem like I'm saying we hit a transition point. We hit a major transition point today um, in the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, today we see... um, this final rejection of Saul as king over Israel. The last several chapters, we've sort of seen Saul in a downward spiral as king of Israel. And we see um, God uh, give a final judgment on the... uh, or pass final judgment on Saul's kingdom in chapter 15 today. And I actually want to start just by... Reading um, the end uh, or a, a couple of verses from the end of fourteen, just to remind us that outwardly Saul's reign is going swimmingly. Um, chapter fourteen forty seven gave us a summary statement. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he, va- and he did valiantly and struck the Amal- Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So in the summary statement... Um, We're given a picture of Saul as militarily successful. But the problem is here we're given a summary statement of his reign, and he's still going to be king for another 16 chapters. So that might be uh, um, alarm number one that something's uh, off here about um, the kingdom of Saul, that this summary description that usually comes at the death of the king or at the end of the king's reign is being given at this point in the book of Samuel so even though outwardly his kingdom has been uh can be seen as successful inwardly there's something just not quite right um, with Saul um, and chapter 15 uh will help us uh dig further into um uh, that inward problem that Saul has. So before I read the text, let me open us in a word of prayer. Almighty God, you are a God who looks upon the heart and that your desire is that uh, your people be in relationship with you. You don't need our outward Uh, Works. You don't need sacrifices from us to sustain you, but you desire that we obey you, that we listen to you, that we follow you, that we love you, and that when we sin against you, that we grieve for our sin. Lord God, uh, prick our ears and our hearts this morning as we read the story of Saul. May we see ourselves in Him and the many ways that we um, disobey You by nibbling away at Your commandments. Not by denying or breaking them outright, but by pushing the boundaries, whittling away, masking our disobedience under the guise of obedience to You. Lord God, show us our sin so that we might see our total need for our Savior. Show us our faithlessness so that we can trust in the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. Demonstrated by your uh, not turning from your purpose, but pursuing it. To the bitter end, even your Son, Jesus Christ, drinking the cup of your wrath to the very dregs, that we, your people, might experience resurrection unto new life and an eternity of relationship with you. May this morning uh, strengthen our understanding of who you are and our need for you. For we ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Alright, First Samuel chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in posing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go. And strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret." Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. in chapter 13, um, we had seen a similar uh, rejection of Saul. Um, In 13.13, Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So in chapter 13, we had that statement of the rejection of Saul and the ending of Saul's kingship. So why do we have a second story of rejection? What's the point of having a second story in which um, we see Saul rejected by God? So, chapter 13 is a, you're not going to have a, um, you're not going to have descendants on the throne. It's going to be a one and done deal for you. Whereas 15 is a rejection of you as, personally as king. So, 1, 13 addressing lineage, 15 addressing Saul personally. Okay? What about some of the rest of you? What do you think? Why? Why the second story? As we talked about in 13, it sort of seemed like, you know, Saul was on a real short leash here. You know, he, he slipped up once and that's it. You're gone. But with having a, a chapter 14, we saw some, some um, Saul doing some questionable things in this battle. And now in 15, we're seeing it's not just a, you know, once slip up. Um, it, it's, it's something related to his character. Um, it's something that's repeating itself through his reign. So it's not just one instance of, of disobedience and he got thrown out. But it's this, this inner quality of Saul that is, is showing itself throughout his, his reign. it's seeing this this repeated of the process of you know god tells saul personally he'll be king and then you know it you know, you know this sort of choosing by lot and then this big public ceremony after he wins a battle so you know have to do numerous steps to repeat the reign so should it surprise us that we've got you know Repeated stories about how this reign comes to an end. And again, even though Saul is going to be around for the rest of 1 Samuel, another 16 chapters, we're talking about the end of his his reign now. Um, And I think that's something um, we have to give attention to. And the Scriptures are giving repeated attention to he's going to be, you know, in this weird situation. He's going to be king still. But not God's king. Yeah, this is not... It wasn't a rash decision on God's part in, in chapter 13. So having repeated sort of takes away some of that... It sense of wow <laughs> I mean because that the shocking thing about 13 is Saul's reign was seemingly going so well up to that point and then it was like whoa <laughs> what happened it, it, it seemed quick and instant but it, with this giving us a little more sense of the process and again that there is some inner aspect of Saul's character that is it is affecting his reign. And it's, the, again, it's this, this description we have of an outwardly successful king, but who's inwardly off. I've seen this passage before, but I've
1: never appreciated it. You're not exactly talking about the but verse 12, it says, Samuel set up
0: a monument for himself. What is, you know, I mean, it's. it's, it's It's characteristic for um, kings in the Near East after they win a major engagement to um, set up a a, a stele or some kind of monument testifying to um, their victory. Um, Some of our earliest um, non-biblical references to Israel come on surrounding kings. It seems, I mean, it, the pronouns there are very specific. He set up a monument for himself. Um, so I, I think the biblical writer is is distinguishing that between other monuments or altars that are set up after battles to commemorate what God has done. Um, yeah, we, we'll get to that in a little bit more. Bill? There's
1: a little different wording that the hand directly in uh, chapter 13 said, you are not kept expand
0: the word in verse uh, 15 saying because you have rejected the word of the Lord and you Yeah, that here we are with this one cuz in 13 we are never quite clear which com- you know it, it it was sort of more a general act of Saul presumptuously taking on this role of Samuel and offering these sacrifices he shouldn't. Whereas this, we have very explicit instructions. Our chapter starts with a, thus says the Lord. And Saul is doing part of that, thus saith the Lord, but not the whole thing. Um, So it's this way his act of disobedience this time is, in, in a sense, more direct because we see that explicit, you know, he has precise instructions for God that he's to follow, and he doesn't follow them to the letter. He follows them as far as he wants to follow them. Okay, well, um, just uh, I wanted to have that general question as we sort of dig into the specifics. So, um, one thing for us as. Um, uh, Christians, you know, on this side of the cross, it it is often um, shocking to our modern ears. Um, this kind of God-instructed destruction. So Amalek is to be utterly destroyed. And look at how the um, Samuel's instructions to Saul, how uh, emphatic they are. These imperatives: go, strike. Devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So what do we do with these kinds of descriptions of of God enacting total warfare upon Amalek? How do we how do we understand what's going on here? I mean, this is, I mean, it's troubling for us who have been instructed by Christ to turn the other tree. And it's really um, disconcerting for non-Christians who would point to passages like this. Well, this is what your God's like. Boy, that seems pretty merciless. Um, So how do we understand this? Complete destruction of the Amalekites. What do we do with this? Yes, sir.
1: One of the reasons, possibly, is that the Attitude, was if you kill my father or my brother or my son, I'm of you. If you have to talk you children the from their
0: Okay, so it's total destruction to bring this to a complete end. That, you know, if you leave some alive, then that person is going to um, carry that blood debt. That they have to now seek vengeance upon Israel. So by um, total destruction, it's forestalling any acts of revenge by the people of Amalek. Okay? no, no. but that's what we're doing. We're fleshing out, you know, there are lots of things involved in this. And I think you're right. One of it is, it's keeping um, the Amalekites from, from, you know, future acts of retribution in the future. Yeah. It's instructive in that sense. God's, it gives us a sense that God is just. And these Amalekites have done serious wrongs and that he is concerned with those wrongs and will punish them. Um, and I think you're exactly right to point it to the same, the same trouble our culture has with the concept of hell. That some people will be punished for their offenses to God. So just as hell is an offensive, so this kind of punishment by God is offensive to people. And to to sort of uh, remind us of what these people had done, so Amalek in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, they were the first people to attack Israel when they had left Egypt. So they haven't even made it to Sinai yet. And the Amalekites are attacking them in the wilderness. And then in Deuteronomy, um, Moses goes on to say, sort of gives a picture of, they They sort of kept following the um, uh, the people as they wandered through the wilderness, picking off the weak and the stragglers so it, it, a people who are preying upon god 's people at their weakest moment, um, as Moses says says in Deuteronomy, you know, these uh, um, Amalekites, when we were weak and and weary, they were attacking the stragglers. So uh, it's a picture of people who uh, came out and opposed um, God's people for no just cause and then continued to... uh, pick at them in their moments of weakness you know plucking those stragglers or like the lion following you know a herd of antelope and you know getting the ones that are falling behind that are separated from the herd and pouncing on them that's the picture of amalek that we have Come here Yeah, this goes beyond military advantage. It goes on, you know, uh, attack for gain. This phrase here um, that the ESV, I I think, really captures the, the, the essence of this phrase, devote to destruction. I mean, we use, you know, that devote, that it's being set apart in a sense. The city itself in its complete destruction is itself being devoted to God in this annihilation the people themselves are not to profit from this so even though um uh, Saul later on is going to say well we brought these things back to sacrifice to you that was the point of destroying them on the spot was this isn't just a military act it's an exercise um of of destruction And that destruction, the objects of that destruction is being devoted completely to God. That Israel is not to benefit materially from this action. It's an act of God's judgment. These things are being devoted to God. And Israel is not to benefit. George. And it's not just the actions, because I mean, some people will be like, well, that, you know, that Exodus was a long time ago. Boy, God's, you know, got a long grudge here. But, you know, as we're, we're told that, you know, Agag um, continues to make women, uh, or women childless, that he's destroying their offspring. Um, so it's not just a once time in the past, but a continued state and some people um, make note in the book of Esther Haman is, is described as an Agite so, a descendant of Agag so it's um, the Amalekites in a sense function as the archetype of the enemies of God's people uh, these are the archetypal people who set themselves in opposition to God in the Exodus, here and in the future uh, always seeking to bring an end to God's people, and God is seeking to eliminate that that evil, that blight um, from this area. Okay, so we have this um, this description, and uh, you know, and it's not um, so different from the New Testament. You know, you think in books, the Book of Revelation. You know, the blood of the martyrs crying out to God and that the way God remembers the wrongs done to his people and God will judge uh, the nations for what they've done to his people. So this this it's it's redemptive in that sense as well. All right. So let's get into Saul. So Saul goes. He. he follows the commands, he kills the people, but he takes Agag alive. And he spares the best of the sheep, oxen, calves, lambs, and all that is good. He doesn't destroy it all. So that leads to um, verse 10. The word of, So we saw the word of the Lord come to Samuel in, in the first uh, verse. And now we see it coming to Samuel again. In verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So what does it mean for God to regret something? And in this case, to regret making Saul king. And complicating the question, I'll go ahead and complicate it, is later in this very same chapter, we're told... Um, In verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or have, same word, regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. So what does it mean for God to regret making Saul king? And does he regret or not regret? What's going on here? How do we understand um, this word regret? And some, um, uh, it's also related to the word um, repent. So some versions would translate God repented of making Saul king. So how do we understand this? That God regretted making Saul king? Or do we not understand it? <laughs> Mary, taking a shot? you're you're on the I think you're on the exact right path and the word um, as you say it's not quite anthropomorphic Um, the word and I'm pretty sure they invented this word for it it's anthropopathic um, you know applying human um, emotion trying to understand God through uh, terms of human emotions Um, and it's this it's it's the inaccuracy of our, our language to express Fundamentally, who God is and what God is like, and so it's it's a problem not in 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 the character of God, but it's in our problem of our language to adequately um, describe who God is and what uh, God is doing at a particular moment.
1: And it's also his will to create, where he is really you know, he's organized, he's organized the history as a, as a complex fabric that stretches from the, the past to the future. And in that framework, you know, he articulates that it's not free. Because in the end, ultimately, everything happens in the court, of his will. So it's not believed from that perspective. However, when you look at individual acts, you look at individual commands that are violated by people who you he knows who are liable, people, who are people, that he says that that's offensive. And so you get the sense here of uh, God's offended by things that are not in the first place of his commands. But that he's he well pleased with the redemption history as a whole,
0: He's grieved and he's not grieved. His Saul's sin is truly offensive to him, and he is uh, offended, grieved at that sin. But at the same time, it's not a surprise to him. Uh, it's it's uh, to go back to Mary. He's you know he sees the whole thing in a moment. Um, it, it's it's not grievous in the sense that you know oh my. Look what Saul's done. You know, even though he knows Saul's going to do this, it still gr- grieves him when he does it. That you know, this man um, who God has anointed, plucked out of obscurity, put in a position to stand before Him as first among the people of Israel, and He has rejected him in this way. It, it's grievous to God. Uh, it's not surprising to God, but it grieves him. Um, one um, uh, a seminary professor um, I had um, describes it um, this way, um, uh, that verse 11 does not indicate fickleness in God's plan or purpose, but the depth of God's sorrow over sin. Um, so it's not the sense that, you know, God is reacting, boy, I made a big mistake there, picking Saul, and man, what was I thinking? It's not It's not about uh, God's decision-making process. The phrase is, is given here to express at how offensive this action of Saul is before God. Yes, sir. it still grieves you (laughs) yeah and it is this uh, to think of it in terms of relationship and I think that's exactly the way we need to think of it it's in terms of this relationship between God and Saul and that's the aspect of it that is really grievous before God we Can you imagine what's going through Samuel's head? <laughs> He's going to have to go stand before this king and tell him, uh, yeah, it's over. <laughs> you're done. Um, how it, you, You're right to sort of put us in that moment of, of God telling Samuel this and then Samuel knowing what he had to do. How grievous this news is for Samuel. Um, he weeps for Saul that night um, the end of the chapter says that um, flip the page here. Um, Samuel continued to grieve over Saul. Um, the beginning of the next chapter, um, the Lord's going to say to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul? Um, this is deeply troubling to Samuel. Um, this is not an easy thing for him to go through.
1: So in some ways, as a messenger, he could take the stand. See, he did
0: exactly what you know he going to do. Yeah, and it's the way Samuel is really shown. I mean, again, we talked about this some last spring when we were going through the minor prophets. How the 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 prophet uh, before God is is stuck (laughs) or caught. On the one hand, he's having to tell God's hard words to the people. But on the other hand, he's turning back and and pleading for the people before God. And we see that here with with Samuel. He's having to deliver these words of judgment to Saul. And at the same time, he's not giving up in his duty to plead for Saul and for the people before God. It's the way the, the prophet is in between people and God. And I think this is, gives us a great picture of him here, giving these, delivering these truly difficult words of judgment. Um, I mean, again, think of how hard it would be to deliver this message, and yet at the same time, it, what Saul's done has grieved him, and he's pleading to God on behalf of Saul. I mean, that I think it's a really striking picture of of what a prophet is supposed to do. Mike, and then we'll come forward. And the way the I, I really like how the Westminster Confession of Faith tries to capture that distinction that that God has these emotions but unlike humans he doesn't have the passions that he's you know affected by them in the same way that these drive his actions that he's you know flying off the handle or fickle based on whether it's he's up or down it, so it's this way that 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 these human emotions are attributed to God, but it's made clear that they don't shape God's experience the way they shape ours. There's a, uh, to go back to the anthropopathic, um, we can only understand this in terms of our own experience and character, which is, is human. So it's this application of human terminology to try to understand something that is wholly different than us. Thank doesn't make it any less painful or um, uh, any less troublesome just because he knows it's going to happen. I mean, to think Jesus knows what's going to happen on the cross and he still, you know, he still weeps blood um, over in, in preparation. To, so, you know, knowing what's going to happen doesn't make it um, easy or doesn't mean that it's it's still not grievous Um it's, it is this way that uh, evil is completely separate from God and God still reacts to it and seeks to end it. All right, well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit um, in our last uh, few moments here about this, um, this interaction between Saul and Samuel. So Samuel, um, after having this sleepless night, now has to track uh, Saul down um, and and deliver this word to him. So, um, how does Saul react to this accusation? So here, Samuel... Yeah, he blames the people. So, you know, blame shifting. And isn't, I mean, we went to Genesis 6. Let's go back to Genesis 3 now. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't me. It was the woman you sit with me. Um, it's, it's interesting. Not only blames the people, um, uh, and I'm, I think of this largely because I've been grading papers. And I just last week given students this, my why passive voice. Isn't good to use in, in historical description because it shifts it, or it it um, it, it masks accountability. Um, it masks who's responsible for the actions. And this whole section is rendered in, in passive voice. Um, you know, Saul's response is um, uh, in, in verse. Uh, they have it's it's. Uh, the ESV renders it as an active, but it's, it's um, they have been brought from the Amalekites. So there's not even a them in there. It's, you know, this, these things have been brought from the Amalekites. You know, it doesn't say who brought them, and then he turns and shifts the people. So it, he's rendering it in this sort of, uh, I'm not responsible for these things kind of thing. Uh, yeah, they just came along with the Amalekites. Oh, it was the people, they wanted to bring them. Um, What else does he say in response to this accusation? Yeah, notice before Samuel even says anything to him, he says, uh, Blessed be you to the Lord. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Um, And then when he says, Samuel says, you've disobeyed. And he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, uh, or king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. So, what's the problem? I obeyed, sort of, <laughs> kind of. You know, he he played with the edges of the obedience. Well, you know, I obeyed mostly. Um, I obeyed partially. <laughs> Um, and I think this is this is something um, I really think should be instructive uh, to us that it's not an enormous um, in-your-face. I'm not going to listen to you, God. It's the way He's couching His disobedience in acts of obedience. Um, it's the way, of, as one, um, um, uh, Eugene Peterson talks about he's nibbling at the edges of God's commandments. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's a 30 mile, I'm not going 100 in a 30 mile an hour zone, I'm going 35 <laughs> over the speed limit, but just a little. Or, you know, I'm not, you know, robbing the, I don't even know what bank is in Concord. Um, You know, I'm going down to the Bank of America and robbing the branch, but, oh, the teller gave me a little extra money. Bonus for Steve, um, you know it's it's that it's it's those little kind of you know, nibbling on the edges of what God's commandment that is really um, is really troubling uh, to God in a way that because it, it allows us to sort of keep this sense of being hey pretty upright <laughs> you know I'm not doing the bad stuff um, but keep you know, accumulating these little kind of couching our disobedience in terms of still being obedient. Mary.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I
0: think the, uh, the masking, the way he masked the obedience or disobedience as obedience. Oh, well, I did it to sacrifice. Um, You know, and again, to sort of think of um, the way, you know, to devote to destruction, that in itself was to be the act of sacrifice. By doing this kind of sacrifice, he has material benefit. Um, You know, the devote to destruction, you get nothing from it. Sacrifice to God and Gilgal, you get the regular portion of food for the king, for all the people. Um, so there's material gain to, to be gained um, it It's, yeah, I, I, I might, I'm back off from my original assertion. There is. I mean, it's blatant enough, I mean, I love that line. <laughs> you know, what's the bleeding of sheep I hear and the lowing of cattle? <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, mean, it, yeah, I, mean, I love the way Scripture describes things um, sometimes. And this is one of those points that's just sort of like, hello (laughs) so Samuel certainly uh, says it's pretty obvious that his disobedience or his disobedience is pretty obvious
1: yeah
0: I think he was yeah it, it could be sugar you know and it's you know once you bring them back you know it's you, it's easier. Certainly, easier. Even if you are bringing them back to sacrifice, it's easier to it's like. Oh no, those cows were in my pasture all along. They didn't come from Amalek.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. He's benefiting multiple ways. Um, the one reason I say that he really uh, that maybe he really was bringing it to sacrifice is one because in the last chapter we saw that Saul is very interested. And going or doing religious things, um, having ceremonies, pursuing rituals. And what this passage is really emphasizing to us, you know, with this, this sort of statement in the middle, has the Lord a great delight and burn? has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord. He's doing all these things. He's going through all these religious actions and yet, He's neglecting the inner matter of that religion. He's performing the externals and he's missing the point of obedience.
1: Like, you know, they don't have killings, larvae, and picking up the I meat. Even if they're very possessed of animals, they're dangerous. And, and if God wanted them the to be able to be destroyed, There's so a picture here of God wanting to fly out and send it early. So, uh, and you'd them? let us it, the whole drove. That's why it's, it's, it's practically here in the house. Allowing monetary
0: Yes, sin has effects on all creation. And then we get that great picture of redemption also having, a, you know, that there will be this moment where the lion lays down with the lamb. So it's, it's interesting that the effects of sin are, are described as tainting all of creation and then the redemption of the world from sin will also involve a restoration uh, of God's creation. Yeah, he seems more merciful in this passage than than God. notice even in in, in saul's act of, you know you have this sort of seeming moment of repentance um on on saul's part and and notice how quickly he sort of falls back from it when when sam like no god's not going to change his mind well could you at least go back and like give a show of you're on my side and it's and i think that's the saul wants the appearance and God wants the reality. And that's you know, what's bringing us to, in the next chapter, when we're introduced to this man after God's own heart, who's going to have similar kind of um, acts of disobedience, but how he reacts at those moments of disobedience is going to be very different than Saul. Um, you know, here in this chapter, just to end with, we're seen, shown God grieving more over the sin of Saul than Saul does. Uh, God is grieved by Saul's sin. Saul's not, and I think that's uh, you know something we we take away from this passage. Yeah, and the pronoun is really striking. Um, Usage in this passage um, both with the setting up a monument to himself and then a couple of times he refers to it as your God um, not our God or not my God Um, which again goes at Saul's been doing all these going through all these motions but there is no there is no inner uh, inward relationship with God it's all on the outside All right, well, let me uh, close us in a word of prayer. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we ask that You would speak to our heart, that we would um, seek to love and obey You, not just outwardly, but inwardly. That we would be concerned um, with uh, following Your Word and then grieving at those moments where we uh, disobey. Lord God, uh, instruct us, help us see ourselves in Saul that we might then see ourselves in Christ and see how he um, makes that um, mediation between us and the wrath of God. That it is only through his blood that we can stand um, holy and blameless before the throne of grace. Help us um, come before You uh, now, not just out of a rote, but out of a, a deep longing to worship and praise You in the coming hour. And we ask it in Your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.